we interrupt your regularly scheduled programming to bring you this special report. Welcome back, our fellow patriots, and today we are indeed taking a break from our regularly scheduled broadcast because we are on the cusp of the anniversary of the shot heard round the world, and we are rebroadcasting our prior special episode. We know it is especially important to do this in 2023. Our country has been experiencing a very taxing and difficult period. It seems with every passing day a new crisis appears. New polls have come out showing that Americans' belief in patriotism has plummeted and that our shared values are under assault. Americans seem to be forgetting what being American really means. We need to remember what unites us as Americans. We are a revolutionary people, a people who have forged a new country based on liberty, freedom, and equality. Sure, we're flawed, but we're the best there has ever been. And we need to remember the sacrifices that men and women have made for us over the centuries. And it is our solemn obligation to continue this grand experiment in self-government. An experiment which, in many respects, began with gunfire on a Massachusetts field on April 19th, 1775. And with that, we are pleased to represent our episode on Lexington and Concord. Welcome back, our fellow patriots, to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics Podcast. In light of the upcoming anniversary of the shot heard around the world, that is the Battles of Lexington and Concord on April 19, 1775, in this special episode, we will be exploring just what happened here, why it happened, and what it meant for America and world history. If you missed our prior episodes, you might want to go back and catch up to where we are now. But this special episode clearly stands on its own. I'm joined by co-narrators Mike Gerard and bombastic Brent Bassett. Unless you are someone like Mike Troy of the American Revolution podcast, chances are extraordinarily high that the last time you learned anything about Lexington and Concord was in high school, likely in a passing reference, or maybe even way back in elementary school. If you are lucky, you might remember that Lexington and Concord are universally acknowledged as when the fighting broke out in the American Revolution. Hence the moniker, the shot heard round the world. A fair warning, this is not going to be our normal, exciting, and entertaining podcast format. Instead, we are amping it up even more. It is going to sound a bit like a play or historical sketch with explanatory narration. We are intending to bring you back in time to put you on the ground as these vital events unfold. Almost the entire narrative is direct quotations or paraphrasing of over a dozen primary sources, way over a dozen, and those sources are sliced and diced into chronological order, as none of the sources alone can tell the whole story. I have made some subtle revisions to many of the primary sources. In particular, I have changed the past tense into the present tense and made the third person perspective into the first person. For example, with regard to the tenses, the phrase I saw would be changed to I see. Also, where accounts differ about time, numbers, and similar matters, and wow, does that happen a lot, I have selected what seems to be the best supported source. Other than one crucial issue, and you will know it when you hear it, the narrative is not interrupted to explore historical disputes. This is all to bring you better into our historical setting. 
Don't worry, nothing substantive has changed, and I claim absolutely no originality. Now forget everything you know about the present day. There is no internet, no social media, no smartphones, no satellites, no computers, no TV, no radio, no cars, no landlines, no railways, no telegraphs, no steam engines, no running water. And forget everything you know about America. ISIS, the War on Terror, Afghanistan, the Cold War, World War II, World War I, the Spanish-American War, the Civil War, all unimaginable. There is no War of 1812, no Constitution, no Declaration of Independence, no United States. But the American Revolution? That is about to start. Join us for a magical mystery tour, all but unimaginable to our 21st century sensibilities. We had to get the Beatles in immediately for Mike Gerard's sake, and not ruin the flow of our story. And because he has good-naturedly suffered our teasing, he begins our narration. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Judge. Now, we begin in jolly old England. Ever since 1761, the English slowly but surely clamped down on colonial liberties. At times, like the Stamp Act, the British mostly back off, but at other times, the British double down on their oppression. The Boston Tea Party in 1773 triggers a severe reaction by the Parliament and the King. They enact the Coercive Acts, which the colonists dub the Intolerable Acts. The Acts backfire. Instead of stifling colonial resistance, they consolidate and stiffen the resolve of colonial resistance. Likewise, the English are not backing down. With each passing day, the colonists and the English are inching towards a violent confrontation. In 1774, the king and his ministry determine that the colonists simply need to be crushed. On November 18, 1774, King George III writes to his prime minister, Lord North, I am not sorry that the line of conduct seems now chalked out. The New England governments are in a state of rebellion. Blows must decide whether they are to be subject to this country or independent. In January 1775, the ministry directs the Empire's Secretary of State for the Colonies, William Legge, better known to history as Lord Dartmouth, to order the newly appointed military commander of British forces in Massachusetts to use military force to squash the rebellion. In early 1775, nearly all English political leaders are confident that the colonists will easily be crushed. When one member of the House of Commons suggests that militarily suppressing the colonists will be impractical, the suggestion is laughed off. On February 10th, 1775, John Montague, better known as the Earl of Sandwich, yes, the man who literally invented the sandwich, confidently declares on the floor of the House of Commons, The Lord Noble mentions the impracticality of conquering America. I cannot think the noble lord can be serious in this matter. Suppose the colonies do abound in men. What does that signify? They are raw, undisciplined, and cowardly men. I wish instead of forty or fifty thousand of these brave fellows that they would produce in the field at least two hundred thousand. The more the better. The easier would be the conquest. If they did not run away, they would starve themselves into compliance with our measures. 
Believe me, my lords, the very sound of cannon would carry them off as fast as their feet could carry them. This is too trifling a part of the argument to detain your lordships any longer. A few days later, on Valentine's Day of 1775, English Major John Pitcairn, who is stationed in Massachusetts, the center of colonial agitation, writes a love note to Sandwich. Pitcairn confirms the Earl's assessment that the rabble in the colonies has no chance against the King's military forces. All friends to government are of the opinion that vigorous measures at present would soon put an end to this rebellion. The deluded people are made to believe that they are invincible. A very impudent publication lately came out, and it asserts that they are an overmatch for all Europe and their own country. When this army is ordered to act against them, they will soon be convinced that they are very insignificant when opposed to regular troops. A few weeks later, on March 4th, 1775, the Major again writes to the Earl of Sandwich, expressing the view that quick, decisive, and brutal military action will smother dead all colonial resistance, and he hopes to receive an order authorizing such an action. Orders are anxiously expected from England to chastise those very bad people. I am satisfied that one active campaign, a smart action, now burning two or three of their towns, will set everything to rights. Nothing now, I am afraid, but this will ever convince those foolish bad people that England is in earnest. The Major is not alone in this view. Indeed, his superior officer, General Thomas Gage, the newly installed military and civilian commander over the Massachusetts colony, thunders to local colonials that any military resistance will be met with brutal retaliation and that the empire would never let the colonies go. I swear by the living God that if there was a single man of the king's troops killed in any of your towns, I will burn it to the ground. What fools you are to pretend to resist the power of Great Britain. She maintained last war three hundred thousand men, and will do the same now rather than suffer the ungrateful people of this country to continue in their rebellion. What Gage and Pitcairn do not know is that their wish was already granted. As noted earlier, in January, the King and the English Ministry approve an offensive operation against the colonists in Massachusetts. Ironically, Lord Dartmouth, Secretary of State of the Colonies, who for years has led fruitless negotiations to try to broker a peace solution, drafts an order to General Gage to engage in military action on January 27, 1775. However, the ship carrying the order hits storms on the voyage to America and retreats back to England. On its second attempt, it lands in Boston Harbor, closed to colonials by virtue of the Boston Port Act of 1774. It arrives in the second week in April. The order instructs Gage to crush the resistance. General Gage, your dispatches relate to facts in Massachusetts that amount to actual revolt and show a determination in the people to commit themselves at all events in open rebellion. The king's dignity and the honor and safety of the empire require that in such a situation, force should be repelled by force. 
Dartmouth explains that the only question is whether to strike now with a smaller force or later after gathering a massive army. He instructs Gage to use his own discretion, but it appears to Dartmouth that striking early is the best course of action. A quick attack could occur before colonial resistance can be better organized and disciplined. In addition to all but ordering a lightning strike now, Dartmouth adds very specific instructions that Gage secretly arrest the leaders of the resistance. While the British are preparing for war, so are the colonists. Paul Revere is a skillful engraver, master silversmith, ardent patriot, friend to Samuel and John Adams, John Hancock, and Dr. Joseph Warren. Revere was a Mohawk who tossed the tea into the Boston Harbor, is an official courier of the Provincial Congress, and carried the Suffolk Resolves to Philadelphia. Revere relates that the colonists are preparing for a military confrontation in part by creating an express system to alert the population if the British are coming. In the fall of 1774, in the winter of 1775, I was one of upwards of 30 chief mechanics who formed ourselves into a committee for the purpose of watching the movements of the British soldiers and gaining every intelligence of the movements of the Tories. We hold our meetings at the Green Dragon Tavern. We are so careful that our meetings should be kept secret that every time we meet, every person swears upon the Bible that they will not disclose any of our transactions. But to Mr. John Hancock, Samuel Adams, Dr. Joseph Warren, Benjamin Church, and one or two more. The colonists are not paranoid. They know they are likely to need this system, and they are right. When General Gage receives the orders in the second week of April 1775, he is all but ready to strike. He selects as his first target an arsenal constructed by Americans in Concord, a small village about 20 miles west of Boston. In addition, as the orders instruct Gage to arrest the colonial ringleaders, he determines that John Hancock and Samuel Adams are his prey. And they're in Lexington, a tiny village about seven miles east of Concord. The Massachusetts Revolutionary Provincial Council meets close by. Gage follows Dartmouth's advice and acts with the utmost of secrecy. But secrecy is not Gage's ally. The Americans quickly discover the plans through spies, plus British soldiers and their wives are indiscreet in discussing their plans. In any event, the British preparations for a military campaign cannot be hidden, and word gets out. Gage hopes to seize the military stores in Concord as early as April 15th, but is unable to organize his troops in time. Meanwhile, Paul Revere begins alerting colonists in the morning of April 16th that the British will be soon on the march. Gage, in turn, learns that the alarm is sprung. On his way back from Concord on the 16th, Revere makes a famous agreement for a signal to alert the countryside when the British are coming. Since Boston at this time is basically an island connected to the mainland with a very small neck of land, the British might come from Boston by ship or on the neck. One or two lanterns will be hung from the steeple of the North Church, one if by land or two if by sea. Revere will ensure that the right number of lights are perched on the North Church when the time comes. Gage resets his plans and determines to act on the night of April 18th. Just as the moon rises around 10 o'clock, shipman John Crozier conducts all the boats of the fleet to the back part of Boston, where he receives the British regular troops composed of grenadiers and light infantry. 
Approximately 850 officers and men are transported, and he lands them on a point of marsh or mudland in Cambridge, which is overflowed with the last quarter flood. Some men are under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Smith of the 10th Regiment, and the remainder are Marines under the command of Major Pitcairn. Crozier performs this service with secrecy and quietness, having oars muffled and every necessary precaution taken, but the watchful inhabitants, whose houses are intermixed with the soldiers' barracks, hear the troops and from thence conclude that something is going on, although they cannot conceive how or where directed. Hardly anyone but the commanding officers know their destination. The common British soldier may be in the dark, but by now the colonists know that Concord is the ultimate target, about 20 miles from the landing site. Leading Son of Liberty, Dr. Joseph Warren, calls for Paul Revere with great haste. Later, Revere would design the official seal for the new nation, engrave the first continental currency, cast in his own foundry spikes and copper accessories for old iron signs, and make the copper plate for the dome of the Boston State House and for the boilers of Robert Fulton's steam ferry boats. But on the night of April 18th, his job is to ride as fast as he can to warn the colonists of the impending British military attack. Revere wastes no time and quickly arrives at Dr. Warren's house, and Warren remarks, As you know, Paul, at my request you previously visited Mr. Hancock and Mr. Samuel Adams to be wary. I beg you, immediately set off for Lexington, where Hancock and Adams are. Acquaint them with the movement of the British troops, and let them know we think they are the objects of their movements. I have already sent Mr. William Dawes by land to warn Lexington. You go by crossing the Charles River or get over the Boston Neck. Fly, you fool! Revere rushes to ensure the correct signal is perched on the North Church steeple, then flies home to prepare for his trip, then goes to the north part of the town where he keeps a boat, and two friends row him across the Charles River. He then meets Colonel Conant and several others, who remark that they had seen the North Church signals. In a few moments, Revere receives the horse of Deacon Larkin and information that ten British-armed mounted officers are going up the road. His journey to Lexington will be about 13 miles. Revere explains what happens next. I set off upon a very good horse. It is about 11 o'clock and very pleasant. I pass Charlestown Neck. I see two men on horseback under a tree. When I get near them, I discover they are British officers. One tries to get ahead of me and the other to take me. I turn my horse very quick and gallop towards Charlestown Neck and then push for the Medford Road. The one who chases me, endeavoring to cut me off, gets into a clay pond. I get clear of him and go through Medford. In Medford, I awake the captain of the Minutemen, and after that, I alarm almost every house till I get to Lexington. I find Mr. Hancock and Adams at Mr. Reverend Jonas Clark's. Reverend Jonas Clark's wife is Hancock's cousin. His home is protected by about a dozen men to ensure that Hancocks and Adams are safe and cannot be arrested or even assassinated. About 30 minutes after Revere reaches Reverend Clark's home, express rider Dawes, who was also sent by Dr. Warren, arrives. It's around midnight. Revere and Dawes refresh themselves and set off for Concord. Meanwhile, the 850 British troops are still standing around where they disembarked. They're waiting for provisions to be brought from the boats and to be divided, and when finally given to them, most of the soldiers throw them away, having already carried some of them with them. At 2 o'clock a.m., they begin to march by wading through a very long ford up to their middles. 
As soon as the British start their march from Boston, bells and firing of guns begin alerting the countryside. Meanwhile, Revere and Dawes set out for Concord. Young Dr. Prescott overtakes them on horseback. Thankfully, he's a dedicated son of liberty. He agrees to join them to warn the people of the advancing British, since he is well-respected and will definitely be taken seriously. Near the same time, Lexington's town bell tolls the alarm, and the commander of the local militia, Captain John Parker, joined by about 70 to perhaps 150 militiamen, quickly assemble on Lexington's little triangular village green. Among Parker and the militia is Silanus Wood of Woburn, a Minuteman who heard the bell and immediately arose, took his gun, and with Robert Douglas in haste, ran the three miles to Lexington. Captain Parker is 46, a farmer and mechanic, and dying of tuberculosis. Back on the road to Concord, Revere, Dawes, and Dr. Prescott are about halfway there when Revere spies two mounted British officers. Revere shouts to Dawes and Dr. Prescott, Come up! Four mounted British troops armed with pistols and swords surround them, but Dr. Prescott charges and jumps a low stone wall and gallops to Concord. Revere makes for a small wood but is trapped by six officers on horseback. He is ordered to Dismount! Who are ya? Paul Revere. Are ya an express rider? Yes. What time did you leave Boston? About 11 o'clock. Shortly there will be 500 Americans here in a short time, for I had alarmed the country all the way Another officer, Major Mitchell of the 5th Regiment, confronts Revere. Major Mitchell claps his pistol to Revere's head and bellows. Paul Revere, I'm going to ask you some questions. And if you don't give me true answers, I'm going to blow your brains out. Are you an express rider? When did you leave Boston? Yes, I left about 11 o'clock. Revere describes what happens next. Mitchell orders me to dismount my horse and searches me for arms. He orders the soldiers to advance and to lead me in front. When we get to the road, they turn down towards Lexington. When he gets about one mile, the major rides up to the officer that was leading me and tells him to give me to the sergeant. As soon as the sergeant takes me, the major orders. If he attempts to run or anybody insults you, blow his brains out. Revere and his escort move towards the Lexington Meeting House. And back in Lexington, just before dawn, at about 4 a.m., drums beat the alarm and the militia sprang back into action and muster to the commons with about 60 men. They hear marching, English voices, from six companies of redcoats under Major John Pitcairn marching towards Lexington. Still outside of Lexington, Major Mitchell, his troops, and Revere hear militia gunshots, apparently warning or practice shots. Mitchell is greatly alarmed. He asks Revere how far it is to Cambridge and if there is any other road. The British discuss their next moves, and they take Revere's horse and leave him to walk as they disappear galloping away into the morning. Revere passes over a cemetery and pastures and returns to Reverend Clark's home. Sam Adams and John Hancock are still there. Revere tells them what happened, and they decide to move to another safe house. As they cut across some meadows, Adams remarks, what a glorious morning this is. I mean, for America. At Hancock's request, Revere speeds to Buckman Tavern and grabs a chest of Hancock's papers stowed away on the second floor. Meanwhile, he spies British troops in a full march across the meadows. 
The British troops appear on both sides of the Lexington Meeting House, confronting the militia under Captain Parker's command. It is dawn. The British are in the finest of military regalia. The militia look like a bunch of farmers, mechanics, tanners, and other assorted artisans, because that is who they are. Captain Parker may not be a professional soldier, but he is no fool. He orders his troops to hold their fire. Don't fire unless fired upon. But if they want a war, let it begin here. British voices respond. Disperse, you rebels. Stop, you rebels. Lay down your arms. Damn you, why don't you lay down your arms? Fire! By God, fire! A pistol is shot, then two muskets fire, and then a roll of musketry. The war begins. Later, the British say the Americans shot first, and the Americans swear literally under oath in a series of depositions that the British shot first. Some say the colonists were dispersing, others that they were holding firm. The accounts contradict. Historians have thrown up their hands, or take sides, or try to meet in the middle. Lieutenant John Barker of the King's Own Royal Regiment of Lancaster was part of the confrontation and claims this is what happened. About five miles this side of a town called Lexington, which lay in our road, we hear there were some hundreds of people collected together intending to oppose us and stop our going on. At five o'clock we arrive there and see a number of people, I believe between 200 and 300, formed in a common in the middle of town. We still continue advancing, keeping prepared against an attack, though without intending to attack them. But on our coming near them, they fire one or two shots, upon which our men, without any orders, rushed in upon them, fire, and put them to flight. Several of them are killed. But another participant, the Minuteman Silanus Wood, claims it happened as follows. The British troops approach us rapidly in platoons, with a general officer on horseback at their head. The officer comes up within about ten yards of the center of the company where I stand, the first platoon being about fifteen yards distance. They there halted. The officer then swings his sword and says, Lay down your arms, you damn rebels, or you are all dead men! Fire! Some guns are fired by the British at us from the first platoon, but no person is killed or hurt, being probably charged only with powder. Just at this time, Captain Parker orders every man to take care of himself. The company immediately disperses, and while the company is dispersing and leaping over the wall, the second platoon of the British fire and kill some of our men. There was not a gun fired by any of Captain Parker's company. Within my knowledge, I was so situated that I must have known it, had anything of the kind taken place before a total dispersion of our company. Regardless of who fired the first shot, the outcome was a slaughter. Eight colonial militiamen were killed by gunfire or bayonet, and up to 14 more are injured. The English? One non-serious wound. The British forces linger, tending to the wounded, and otherwise trying to create order. They cannot find John Hancock or Samuel Adams, the whole reason they went to Lexington in the first place. The troops are then ordered to move on to Concord to destroy military stores. They march. British soldier Barker explains what happened next. We meet with no interruption till within a mile or two of the town, where the country people are occupying a hill which commands the road. The light infantry are ordered away to the right and ascend the height in one line, upon which the Yankees quit it without firing, which they do likewise for one or two more successively. 
We cross the river beyond the town, and we march into the town after taking possession of the hill with the liberty pole on it and a flag flying, which was cut down. The Yankees had the hill, but they left it to us. We expect they would have made a stand there, but they chose not to. Mike Gerard, stop hogging the microphone. You did a great job in Lexington. I'll take Concord, thank you very much. Dr. Sam Prescott raises the alarm in Concord. The town is waiting for the British. Minutemen from Concord and surrounding towns such as Acton and Lincoln are on hand. Captain Minot commands and directs the Colonials to take possession of a hill above the meeting house as the most advantageous position. Meanwhile, the Colonial Express messenger system has already jumped into action. The Committee of Public Safety of Watertown, Massachusetts writes a warning at 11 a.m. on April 19th calling for a militia to help fight off the British regulars. Written by General John Palmer, it is short, sweet, and powerful. To all friends of American liberty be it known that this morning, before break of day, a brigade consisting of about a 1,000 to 1,200 men landed at Phipps Farm at Cambridge and marched to Lexington, where they found a company of our militia in arms, upon whom they fired without any provocation and killed six men and wounded four others. By an express from Boston, we find another brigade are now upon their march from Boston, supposed to be about 1,000 men. The bearer, Israel Bissell, is charged to alarm the country, quite to Connecticut, and all persons are desired to furnish him with fresh horses as they may be needed. I have spoken with several who have seen the dead and wounded. While the countryside is being alerted, in Concord, British light companies detach beyond the river to examine some houses for military stores and come upon the militia. The Minutemen retreat, the British having more than three times the militia forces. The British try to follow, and the colonists again scramble away, waiting for new troops to arrive. The colonists retreat over bridges. Driving off the defenders, the British occupy the meeting and townhouse and find some military supplies. They refresh themselves, and then set fire to the meeting and townhouse. The British destroy two or three pieces of cannon, several gun carriages, and about a hundred barrels of flour. However, they are disappointed. Much of the arms they hope to capture has already been spirited away. The people of the town put out the fire, and the British light it back up. The British brigade marches out, playing contemptuously Yankee Doodle. Meanwhile, the militia stay in a mustard field, about a mile away across a bridge on the Concord River. Slowly but surely, militiamen from across the area start to arrive, swelling the colonial troops. The commander of the militia, Colonel James Barrett, is 60 years old. He is no soldier. He is a miller and is wearing his soiled leather apron on the field. Even as his ranks gain hundreds of men, he is not enthusiastic about going to war. But now, black smoke rises above the trees in Concord. It looks like the village is being put to the torch. Barrett springs into action and orders his men to arm their weapons and march to the North Bridge, which spans the Concord River, and leads them back to town. However, over a hundred redcoats are on the other side of the bridge, The lead element of the militia moves onto the bridge with orders not to shoot unless fired upon. A shot rings out. In fact, the British fire three distinct times. This time, there is no question. The British fire first three times over. The Colonials unleash return fire with a spirit becoming free-born Americans. Six Americans are wounded, two fatally, including Captain Isaac Davis, a farmer shot through the heart. Twelve British regular troops are cut down, three fatally. This time, the British regulars break in panic, disorder, and confusion and join the rest of their troops in Concord. For a while, the British vacillate between defensive positioning and offensive attack on and around the bridge, 
but with the arsenal mostly destroyed and a large and growing force of enraged militia ready to descend on them, after 30 minutes or so, Colonel Smith orders a retreat back to Boston. The swelling Minutemen and other America militia determined to make the British pay. Large contingents break off and rush ahead down the road where the British will have to march. They lie in wait, in ambush, behind walls, fences, and buildings, ready to fire upon the enemy on their retreat. As they retreat, British Lieutenant John Barker shares his perspective. Before we quit the town, we are fired on from houses and behind trees. And before we had gone a half a mile, we are fired on from all sides, but mostly from the rear, where people hide themselves in houses till we pass and then fire. The country is an amazing strong one, full of hills, woods, stone walls, etc., which the rebels do not fail to take advantage of. For they are all lined with people who keep an incessant fire upon us as we do upon them, but not with the same advantage, for they are so concealed there is hardly any seeing them. In this way, we march between nine and ten miles, their numbers increasing from all parts, where ours reduced by deaths, wounds, and fatigue. And we are totally surrounded with such an incessant fire as it's impossible to conceive. Our ammunition is likewise near expended. British Lieutenant Frederick Mackenzie fills in some more of the details. During the whole of the march from Lexington, the rebels keep an incessant, irregular fire from all points at the column, which is the more galling as our flanking parties, which at first are placed at sufficient distances to cover the march of it, are at last, from the different obstructions they occasionally meet with, obliged to keep almost close to it. Our men have very few opportunities of getting good shots at the rebels, as they hardly ever fire but under cover of a stone wall from behind a tree or out of a house, and the moment they fire, they lay down out of sight until they reload again or the column has passed. In the road, indeed in our rear, they are most numerous, and come on pretty close, frequently calling out King Hancock forever. The British are saved when reinforcements of approximately a thousand troops under the command of Brigadier General Earl Percy meet them on the road at about 2.30 in the afternoon. That this force's coming was noted in the call to arms delivered by Israel Bissell. Percy's forces fire cannon and drive off the rebels. Because of logistical snafus, Percy's troops are at least two hours, if not more, behind schedule. The retreating British troops had given up hope of reinforcements and are just thrilled to meet their salvation. Percy's troops secure a perimeter, and then the retreating troops rest for about half an hour and then start up again, marching without much problem for about two miles. British Lieutenant Barker renders what happens next. They then begin to pepper us again from the same sort of places, but at a rather greater distance. We are now obliged to force almost every house in the road for the rebels have taken possession of them and gall us exceedingly. But they suffer for their temerity, for all that were found in the houses were put to death. The retreat of the British troops becomes a living hell, a house-to-house battle for miles. British Lieutenant Frederick Mackenzie relates the harrowing journey of the retreat. Many of the rebels are killed in the houses on the rude side from where they fire. In some of them, seven or eight are destroyed. Some houses 
are forced open in which no person is discovered. But when the column passes, numbers sally out from some places in which they had lain concealed, fire at the rear guard, and augment the numbers which follow us. If we had time to set fire to those houses, many rebels must have perished in them. But as night drew on, old Percy thought it best to continue the march. Many houses are plundered by the soldiers, notwithstanding the efforts of the officers to prevent it. I have no doubt this inflames the rebels and makes many of them follow us further than they would otherwise have done. By all accounts, some soldiers who stayed too long in the houses are killed in the very act of plundering by those who lay concealed in them. The desperate British troops lose all sense of restraint. Reverend Jonas Clark, pastor of the church in Lexington, remember this is the guy that Hancock and Adams were with, relates the brutality. In the retreat of the king's troops from Concord to Lexington, they ravage and plunder as they have opportunity more or less in most of the houses that are upon the road. But after they are joined by Percy's brigade in Lexington, it seemed as if all the little remains of humanity had left them. And rage and revenge take the reins and knows no bounds. Clothing, furniture, provisions, goods, plundered, broken, carried off, or destroyed. Buildings, especially dwelling houses, abused, defaced, battered, shattered, and almost ruined. And as if this had not been enough, numbers of them doomed to the flames. Three dwelling houses, two shops, and a barn are laid in ashes in Lexington. Many others are set on fire in this town in Cambridge and others and must have shared the same fate had they not been the close pursuit of the Bavencos prevented and the flames been quenched. Add to all this, the unarmed, the aged and infirm, who are unable to flee, are inhumanely stabbed and murdered in their habitations. Yea, even women in childbed, with their helpless babes in their arms, do not escape the hard alternative of being either cruelly murdered in their beds, burnt in their habitations, or turned into the streets to perish with cold, nakedness, and distress. But I forbear. Words are too insignificant to express the hard barbarities of that distressing day. As an aside, during the English retreat, John Parker, the colonial commander at Lexington when the first shot is fired, rallies his militiamen and inflict what is now dubbed Parker's Revenge on the retreating British troops. They join in the ambush of the British on the retreat to Boston. Historian John Furling fleshes out some of the more heart-wrenching details of the retreat as a whole. War brings out the best and worst in people. Catherine Louisa Smith, Abigail Adams' sister-in-law, who lives about halfway between Concord and Lexington, helps a badly wounded grenadier into her house and tries to nurse him. The soldier dies and is buried on a Yankee farm. Heroism is displayed by fighting men on both sides, but wanton cruelty is in evidence as well. Victimized by snipers who fire from inside houses, contingents of regulars at times storm dwellings in search of partisans. When the soldiers invade a home, they often give no quarter. Those who enter houses following the battle sometimes find bodies strewn about, and one witness exclaims that the butchery and one residence is so immense that blood was over half my shoes. Others report finding civilians who are stabbed, bludgeoned, and shot, and one told of discovering the inhabitants brains out on the floors and walls. Not infrequently, the king's soldiers plunder and burn houses and kill livestock. 
The maniacal British troops pushed their way through very heavy fire at the town of Monotony and finally arrived to the safety of Charlestown sometime between 7 and 8 o'clock at night. They are exhausted and defeated. The defeat is more political and moral than military. The British learn that the Americans are not cowards and will fight like hell to defend their liberty. Meanwhile, the British commit unforgivable atrocities of arson, pillage, and murder. At the end of the day, 49 Americans are dead, 39 are wounded, and 5 are missing. The British suffer 73 deaths, 174 injured, and 26 are missing. So what does this mean for America? On that very night, John Adams writes, When I reflect and consider that the fight was between those whose parents but a few generations ago were brothers, I shudder at the thought. And there's no knowing where our calamities will end. Some thought they knew. A contemporary writer, likely John Crozier, the master of the frigate Empress of Russia, writes to his friend Dr. Rogers of the Royal Navy that the ferocity of the rebels' resistance in the battle reveals that force of arms would never work to tame America. The enthusiastic zeal with which those people behaved must convince every reasonable man what a difficult and unpleasant task General Gage has before him. Even women had firelocks. One was seen to fire a blinder boss between her father and husband from their windows. There they three with an infant child soon suffered the fury of the day. In another house, which was long defended by nine resolute fellows, the grenadiers at last got possession which, after having run their bayonets into seven, the eighth continued to abuse them with all the moat like a rage of a true Cromwellian and, but a moment before he quitted this world, applied such epithets as I must leave unmentioned. God of his infinite mercy be pleased to restore peace and unanimity to those countries again, for I never did nor can think that arms will enforce obedience. These assessments proved to be true. As noted earlier, on the morning of April 19th, Israel Bissell was already carrying an alarm written by General Palmer of Watertown's Committee of Public Safety calling for a militia to rally against the British. On the 19th, Bissell reaches as far as Worcester, Massachusetts, and his horse falls dead. The next day, he is in New London, Connecticut, then New Haven, Connecticut, and by the 23rd in New York City. In a few hours, he's in New Jersey and in Philadelphia the next day. Other couriers spread the news to New Hampshire, Western Massachusetts, and the Hudson Valley. Ironically, this dispatch reaches London before the British can send their own account. In response to Palmer's message carried by Bissell, not only did militia pour out to harass the retreating British on April 19th, over the next few days and weeks, it spurs additional militia to come to surround British-occupied Boston. It does not take long for the Americans to decide that they must have a real army to protect their liberties. Indeed, on April 30th, 1775, the Massachusetts Provincial Assembly approves a call to arms, written by Dr. Joseph Warren. This too reaches England ahead of the British accounts of what happened. The barbarous murders on our innocent brethren on Wednesday the 19th instant has made it absolutely necessary that we immediately raise an army to defend our wives and our children from the butchering hands of an inhumane soldiery who incensed at the obstacles they met with in their bloody progress and enraged at being repulsed from the field of slaughter will without the least doubt take the first opportunity in their power to ravage this devoted country with fire and sword. We conjure you, therefore, by all that is dear, by all that is sacred, that you give all assistance possible in forming an army. Our all is at stake. 
death and devastation are the certain consequences of delay. Every moment is infinitely precious, and our loss may deluge your country in blood and entail perpetual slavery upon the few of your posterity who may survive the carnage. We beg and entreat, as you will answer it to your country, to your own consciousness, and above all, as you will answer to God himself, that you will hasten and encourage by all possible means the enlistment of men to form the army and send them forward to headquarters at Cambridge with that expedition which the vast importance and instant urgency of the affair demands. Even before this call to arms is issued, thousands of militia are streaming into the Boston area. Military and other supplies are flooding in from neighboring colonies. Even South Carolina sends two infantry regiments and a regiment of rangers. Faraway Georgia sends a shipment of rice. After April 19th, George Washington is convinced that the colonists must not give in. As soon as he hears the news, he declares, Unhappy it is, though, to reflect that a brother's sword has been sheathed in a brother's breast, and that the once happy and peaceful plains of America are either to be drenched with blood or inhabited by slaves. Sad alternative. But can a virtuous man hesitate in his choice? No, there is no choice. America is going to be free or die. The American Revolution is begun. The world will never be the same. Some key takeaways from this episode. Well before the Declaration of Independence, the British had determined that they would end Americans' resistance to British tyranny by crushing them militarily. The British believed that they would easily cower the Americans into submission with a decisive military strike and the arrest of some of the leaders of the resistance. The British confrontation at Lexington sparked the shot heard round the world and ended in a small massacre of Americans. The British confrontation in Concord was eventually driven off, and the British were lucky to escape with their lives over a long and harrowing retreat. They suffered many casualties and inflicted barbaric attacks on Americans. The colonies were not cowed into submission, but rallied to military action and to militarily surround British-occupied Boston. Although it would take more than a year for Americans to make the final break with the English Empire with the Declaration of Independence, the stage was set, and over a decade of political and economic resistance to English oppression transfigured into open war. Please join us for our next general episode about the penultimate line of the Declaration of Independence. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in General Congress assembled, appealing to the Supreme Judge of the World for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these United Colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British Crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved. And that is free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. Unquote. This podcast is produced by Patriot Week. Please visit Patriot Week's website at patriotweek.org for our many fabulous resources, including lesson plans and over 200 videos. I am Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren and author of America's Survival Guide. Our other two terrific narrators are Mike Gerard Skenechny, who is our sound designer and the host of his own unique podcast, Be Reasonable with Mike Gerard, and bombastic Brent Bassett, dungeon master extraordinaire and the host with the most. Our fellow patriots, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America.
thank you, our fellow patriots, for listening. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. That is, if you're going to give us those five golden stars, we can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and many other platforms. You can also find much more at patriotweek.org, which includes videos, lesson plans, TV episodes, and many other goodies. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11th, the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17th, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. It has been recognized by the U.S. Senate and many states. Patriot Week was started by then 10-year-old Leah Warren when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration of America. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and on Instagram, or reach out directly at mwarren at patriotweek.org. Also consider Judge Warren's book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles and History by visiting americasurvivalguide.com, Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America.